0: It's a book about worship. It's a book about the covenant. It's a book about the day of the Lord. We've talked about that theme throughout some of the prophets. It's a book where God says, you're doing it wrong. Where he corrects the people of Israel for the sins that they've committed so that they can live lives that better reflect his character and his glory. It's a book where God says, Elijah is coming, and so is the great day of the Lord. So the question is, how do we live life, uh, the Christian life, with integrity? How do we live the Christian life with hope? Well, the book of Malachi shows us how. Let's take a look. We begin with the author and date. In the very first verse of the book, we read, The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi's name means literally my messenger. Uh, Melech is message or messenger and the little I at the end is a possessive. It means I, so my messenger. Uh, Melechi. Now because we know so little about Malachi, some have suggested that Malachi might not actually be uh, a proper name, but that it, this maybe was an anonymous person who was writ, writing as my messenger, and just sort of a generic messenger of the Lord. Now, we have no way of knowing really for sure, but Ray Dillard and Tremper Longman uh, observe the most natural reading of the superscription regards Malachi as the proper name of a prophet who is mentioned no other place, and about whom we know very little. It just says Malachi. We don't even get his dad's name or his grandfather's name. There's no connection at all. Um, It's just Malachi, my messenger. Now, we believe that Malachi was written somewhere between 475 and 450 B.C. Now, is that uh, before or after the northern kingdom was routed by the Assyrians? or after? After. 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 Was it before or after the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, was uh, routed by the Babylonians? After. Uh, Before or after the return to Jerusalem after the exile? During? It was a little bit afterwards. Uh, So 475 to 450 B.C., much of the book is focused on the priests and the temple. So presumably the book was written after the temple was rebuilt in 515 and 516 B.C. Does that make sense? So Ezra and that first wave of, uh, of people come back from Babylon. Uh, we get the famous passage, Hey, uh, you guys are building your own houses, but what about my house? What about the house of the Lord? So uh, they responded, that was the book of Haggai and Zechariah. And now uh, Malachi is written at a time where he assumes and speaks as if the temple exists again and is currently in use. So we think it's, we're pretty sure it's after 515, 516 B.C. Uh, Walter Kaiser points out that many of the problems Malachi faced were also faced by Nehemiah, who built the walls of the city. You remember the story of Ezra and then Nehemiah? He goes around, he sees the walls of the city are in shambles. He leads a great rebuilding project. He addresses many of the same issues. Let's look at, here's some common themes in both Malachi and Nehemiah, which which suggests that they were roughly contemporary. Um, Both men talked about the problem of mixed marriages, about Uh, Jewish people marrying Gentile women both address a failure to tithe, to give that way. Uh, Both address Sabbath-breaking. Both address, address the corruption in the priesthood. Both address various social problems and injustices in the empire. Now, just a quick note here. Given the lack of attention to rebuilding the wall... It's possible that Malachi prophesied just before Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem. Does that make sense? So probably in a time after the temple has been rebuilt, uh, Nehemiah has not yet arrived because really the the major uh, thrust to rebuild the walls of the city happens under Nehemiah. So we're, we're thinking that maybe he was in the gap between Ezra and Nehemiah. But again, we're kind of guessing based on some clues in the text. All right, so literary analysis and outline. Malachi is organized around six disputes. In each dispute, the Lord describes his character. The people pose a question, and then the Lord answers the question by showing them how they have sinned and how they should live differently in light of God's law. So somebody read, I'll give you a couple of examples from the first and the second dispute. You can see if you can hear the pattern. Somebody read Malachi 1 verses 2 and 3. Do you see the, the Do you see the the pattern? There's a declaration by the Lord, I have loved you. The people question it. That's that's where we get the term dispute, or why we call it a dispute. They say, how "Have you loved us?" And then he points out, "Listen, I chose uh, I I chose Jacob, uh, and not uh, not Esau," and that's famously quoted in Romans chapter nine to talk about you know God's God's uh, actions in salvation. Um, that he has chosen Jacob over Esau. All right, here's another one. There are six of these, but I'll just give you the first two so you can see it. Somebody read Malachi 1, 6 and 7. you see that back and forth between uh, the Lord and the people there's again there's six of these disputes in the book of Malachi now Mark uh, Dever points out that the six disputes can be organized really around three themes if you want to think of it this way Uh, theme one is how you treat others other people in the society Uh, Theme two is how you treat yourself, kind of your personal holiness and how you live. And then theme three is how you treat God, worship, tithing. The first theme is discussed in Disputes 3 and 4, which is kind of the central focus of the book. The second is discussed in 2 and 5, and then the third is in uh, 3, Is oh, I made a mistake, 1 and 6. It's a typo. Does that make sense? So you have the central theme about, um, how you treat, about how you treat other people is in really the heart of the book. The second theme is in 2 and 5, and then uh, how you treat God as the first and the last. That kind of bookends uh, the book. Okay, let's look at some of these disputes. The first dispute is, how have you loved us? Malachi 1, 2 through 5. In the first dispute, God declares his love for the people. I have loved you, says the Lord. We read that. The people ask, how have you loved us? And God responds by reminding them that he chose them, the children of Jacob, over the Edomites, who were the children of Esau. He says, verse 3, I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Feel free to use that on your Valentine's Day cards, guys. Uh, If your wife wants to know, how have you loved me? Uh, Talk about laying waste to the jackals in the desert. She will be deeply moved. The point is that God is sovereign over all nations, not just Israel, all nations. Somebody read uh, Malachi 1 verse 5. Beyond the border of Israel. Uh, again, that's we've talked about this before, so I won't belabor the point. But it was a common, commonly held belief in the ancient world that each nation had their own God. And that God was sovereign over that nation. Outside the walls of that nation, well, now another God is in charge. So uh, the Lord is making a very radical claim here in that context to say there is one God... I am the Lord, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and he is God over all nations, not just Israel. All right, here's a question. Is God still sovereign over all nations? What are some of the enemies that God has defeated in your life, and how does God's sovereign love encourage us when we feel like we're being attacked? What do you think? Is God still sovereign over all nations? Yeah, he is. What about Russia? Is he sovereign over that? Yes. Yeah, he's still sovereign over that. Uh, what about China? We're pretty worried about them right now. Is he still sovereign over them? Yes. Sure is. Uh, can uh, some foreign nation attack us and destroy us without uh, God's involvement in this? No. no, not at all. The Lord is sovereign. All right, so yeah, go ahead, Ken. It's not a promise that there never will be wars, as you noted, but that God is sovereign over all of these things. Um, and that you know, we have reason to be concerned, but ultimately we have no reason to, to worry as those who have no hope. Um, because we know that God is still in control. He's still sovereign. He's Lord of all things. Now, that's kind of on a macro scale, on a global scale. What about in your life? Uh, What are some uh, enemies that God has defeated in your life? Maybe some enemies or something that you thought, man, I'm never going to get over this. I'm never going to get over this fear or this worry or this sin. What are some things that God has has, uh, sovereign over uh, in your life? Yes. Yes. That's awesome. Thanks, Kathy, for sharing that. Yeah, Cindy. I
1: was
2: going to say God has defeated the enemy of unrest in my, uh, my heart and soul and mm. mind, so whatever troubles come, you know, just like recently my father's stroke, it's still, the peace of God still reigns
0: mm. in that circumstance. Mm-hmm. Good. Anybody else want to share anything? How about, um, how does God's sovereign love encourage us when we feel like we're being attacked? Because Israelites were always being attacked by other nations, uh, particularly the Edomites. But how does His sovereign love encourage us when we feel like, ah, people are against us?
3: Sometimes you feel that in little things. I I find um, It says in Thessalonians, in everything give thanks, that this is the will of God concerning you. It's hard, you know, when you slam your finger in the door or you spill coffee all over yourself. Maybe that's what I I try not to. There's words that I use to, to express that anger. They're nothing bad, like rats and nuts and and all mm-hmm. those things. But yeah, I try not to do that because uh, just, but instead of doing that, to do things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good just, point, Ken. Just
3: a little things. Mm-hmm.
0: Good. Anybody else? Thoughts? Yeah, Eddie. a good point. We will dwell ultimately in the house of the Lord forever. So we know how this story ends. It's just a matter of getting from here to there, which is uh, the time that we wrestle with the Lord and we wrestle with the problems of life. All right, let's look at the uh, second dispute. The second one is, are you giving God your best? In the second dispute, God addresses the priests. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? The priests say, as we read this, uh, how have we despised your name? And God says, by offering polluted food upon the altar. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? The point is that the Israelites were not offering their, their best animals for the sacrifices, and the priests were accepting those sacrifices and just kind of writing it off and saying, well, oh, that's okay. When you give God your time, your efforts, your tithes, your offerings, question is, do you give God your best? What's the difference between regular giving and sacrificial giving? Why do you think God wants us to give sacrificially? Does God need the sheep? Does God need our tithes and offerings? What do you think? No, No, He doesn't need them, but He's always saying that we need to give them. Why do you think that is? (coughs) Say again. Yeah, it, it reflects our attitude and our heart about who God is. Uh, you know, somebody that you really love, somebody you really value, and is coming over for dinner, do you prepare a feast for that person? Or do you go, hey, I think we got something in the fridge. I'll just kind of <laughs> throw that in the microwave and put it on the table. You know, it's like, well, you're not, you know, how much do you really honor or value that person's presence in your home? Not, not much. You know, you, you didn't put a lot of effort into it. Um, Yes, Betsy. Yeah, we we can't outgive God. Our generosity can never uh, match God's generosity to us. And uh, I have found that more often than not. I mean, it's certainly possible. I but I've found more often than not that our lack of generosity is usually based on fear more than reality. Uh, fear of some future unknown that somehow, if if I am generous not only with money, but also with my time or my schedule. Hey, if I do all these things, if I sign up to serve here or do this thing, then somehow some unexplained, unexpected future event is going to come up, and I'm not going to have the resources to deal with that because I've already given all my resources to the Lord. I've given all my time. I've given my uh, money. I've get Whatever it is that we're giving to the Lord, we kind of hold back, because there's a fear that maybe someday God won't take care of us. Maybe someday I'll be on my own. And Isra- to put it, use the example from the Israelites, well, hey, listen, if I give my best sheep, what if I never have another good sheep? What if that best sheep is the only one there ever was? And now I'm only going to have, you know, lame sheep or, you know, messed up stuff. If I give this very valuable thing, then maybe it's a zero-sum game. You know, I give, I lose, uh, I won't have enough. But that's just not true. Um, Giving is never a zero-sum game. Uh, God always provides for us. He always takes care of us. So we can give, you know, our time, our talents, our efforts. And uh, I'm a big believer in you know, it's not saying that things have to be perfect. Nothing's ever really perfect. But I'm never a fan of kind of doing things kind of halfway when you're doing it for the Lord. Well, it's just church, you know. Uh, that's the wrong attitude. We should give it our best. You know, it's not going to be perfect. Nothing is ever perfect. But try. Put a little bit of effort in. Um, you know, y'all are going to be teaching uh, some Sunday school classes this summer. Listen, nobody's expecting. No, I don't give theological treatises here in this class i'm not expecting you to like come up with some brilliant thing but just be faithful uh pray on your text teach the text when you come to sunday school listen be ready to go be ready to engage all of that has to do with kind of giving god our best and not the leftovers and not the lame sheep and the things but really what matters most to us yes
1: Mm-hmm. And when you read that, and it's like, that's an interesting thing to think on that. You know, that's often you see how you get to the end of the day,
0: you're blessed with all kinds of things, and you forget to say thank you. Mm. Yes, yeah, that's a great, great point, the sacrifice of thanksgiving and being thankful to God for what he gives us. Good. All right, third dispute, and there's six of them. Here's the third one. Uh, honoring God with our marriages. In the third dispute, God asks... Have we not all one father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. The people were breaking their covenant with God by marrying unbelievers who led them into idolatry. Not only were the men of Israel marrying unbelieving wives, they were divorcing their own wives for unbiblical reasons. Somebody read chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, either in your Bible or on the screen. Okay. This now, this is a couple of questions for you as we try to apply this. Um, why do you think God cares so much about marriage? Second, second question, kind of related. Uh, are there ever biblical reasons to get a divorce? Why do you think? It's, why is it important for Christians to marry other Christians and then stay married? Unless it's absolutely necessary to get a divorce. Why does God put so much emphasis on marriage in the Bible? Why do you think that is? Well, it's a
3: testimony to Christ.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
4: It takes everything that we see God giving us, mm-hmm.
0: we have to give to our spouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really at the heart of the message um, of Ephesians 5. Paul's talking about marriage, and he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm speaking of Christ and the church. So there's a, a sense in which our human marriages image the perfect marriage of Jesus, the groom, And the church as his bride.
3: Yep. I saw a uh, scene from a movie this week, and uh, it was this godly couple, and they were on a ranch, and they had uh, had uh, cowboys that uh, that they hired and everything. The cowboys they had Sunday morning service, and they're sitting around drinking coffee. And
0: I know you wonder where I'm going with this. uh, Is Top Gun Maverick Ken? (laughs) No, I fell asleep for a second in that movie. I don't remember cow pokes.
3: <laughs> but anyway, they were they were sitting around talking and deciding whether they were going to go to service, and they said, if it makes them like they are, it bears checking out. You know? mm-hmm. And I think that that's what our marriages should be. They should be. People should look at them and say, if that makes them like they are, then we, we ought to check it out. What makes that?
0: Difference? Good, yeah. So it could be a testimony of how God changes us, um, and enabling us to have healthy marriages, and to forgive one <laughs> another, to love one another selflessly and sacrificially. What do you think? Marriage, divorce, uh, is there ever, uh, is there ever any provision in the Bible that addresses uh, divorce? Yes? yes? Uh, what does what Jesus say about divorce? What does the Apostle Paul say about divorce? What do they say about marriage? First off, what do they say about marriage? Kind of positively.
3: What God has joined together, let no man separate.
0: Yeah, what God has joined together, do not let uh, man separate. He says in the beginning, uh, he made Adam and Eve. Uh, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast uh, to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. There's all that talk about, uh, you know, union with uh, in within marriage. Uh, what what uh, what about divorce? Divorce is very common, especially in our culture today. You know, we have no fault divorce, and people get divorced for maybe less than biblical or godly reasons. Uh, is divorce ever necessary? Yes. yes. When, when a
1: spouse commits adultery.
0: Mm-hmm. When one spouse commits adultery, Jesus talks about that. There are some some sins, uh, for example, adultery, which so profoundly tear at that one flesh union that in some instances or in some cases, the person who has committed adultery has effectively divorced their spouse. Maybe not legally, maybe not walking down the courthouse and signing a paper, but through that act of betrayal... Um, they have effectively abandoned their spouse. I think that that's the principle that, that Jesus uses. Yes? House that does not convert to Christianity basically says, Hey, listen, you want to live in this house, we're staying married, you're not not reading the Bible, you're not going to church, I don't want to hear any of that Jesus talk, then again, that person has effectively divorced you. And I think that that's kind of the overall lesson of what Jesus teaches about marriage and divorce, and uh, why Paul speaks about marriage and divorce the way that he does. He says, sort of the
4: So that's kind of marriage.
0: just kind of talk it through and say, hey, do I need 7. you guys Says uh, anyone who gets divorced, except for cases of adultery, you know, has committed a sin. So,
2: witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Okay.
0: Uh, God is telling us. Salvation or good works? Can't have salvation by good works. Say again? Cannot get salvation by good works. Well, why not? Uh, Because our best works are filthy rags. Right. Uh, Isaiah says all of our good works are filthy rags.
2: We're saved by
0: Jesus, not by ourselves. Yeah, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Okay, so, hey, live it up. Hey, uh, who cares about the injustice in the world? orphans in Africa, who cares about Faith. This is not your own doing, gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And yet James, who is the earthly brother of the Lord Jesus, says that faith, quote unquote, without works is dead. It's meaningless to say I have faith in the Lord Jesus and then you know abandon people who are in need. Then you don't have true faith. You're, you're self-deceived, or you're. similar
3: says uh pour you out of
0: saying What if he kills a spirit of...
2: It, it almost feels like you've been
0: blessed when you do it. Yeah, that's the next Are there in the Bible, and is God's love for us conditional or unconditional? What do you think? What is a covenant? Give me a working definition. A one-sided contract. Uh, One-sided contract?
5: Uh Well, that's a good question. You have to is, yeah. is that the same or is that... Yeah.
0: So that in him, we might uh, become the righteousness of God. So Jesus, through his obedience to the law, uh, kept the conditions that we have failed to keep. And then through his death on the cross, he essentially endured the covenant sanctions or the language is, is covenant language. So he was treated like a covenant breaker. Alright, we've got to hurry up. All right, uh, we'll jump through this real quick. Character of God. Throughout the book, we're told many things about the character of God. We'll so these real quick. So again, uh, God loves his people. Uh, God is Israel's father and master. God's Israel's father and creator. He created us. God is a God of God. Yes, you. sin. by your spirit.